Hello, and thank you for joining the New Life Baptist Church podcast. It is such a privilege to be able to share God's Word with you through this platform, and it's our desire that you would have an open heart to receive what the Lord has for you through this message. If you'd like to contact us, please visit our website at newlifecasagrande.com. There you'll find contact information to reach us directly, or if you're local to the Casa Grande area, you'll find information to plan your first visit. If you benefit from this sermon, please share it with a friend or feel free to leave a review. Now, let's get ready to hear what God has for us today. So there are so many things that we could think about when we consider uh, the book of Esther. And uh, today we're going to take the time uh, to look at this story. Now, we all recognize a couple of things about the book of Esther. Uh, Not many books in the Bible are named after women, but this one specifically is, and it shares her story, which I think is absolutely beautiful and amazing. We also recognize that the book of Esther is one of two books where the name of God is never mentioned. That's why we talk about this idea of God behind the scenes or the title of our series, Hope Unseen, okay? Uh, God's name, the, the, the name Jehovah, uh, uh, the, the name of God, the Lord, is never mentioned not one time in the entire book. It is in the Song of Solomon. It's also not mentioned in the, in the Song of Solomon as well. Those are the two books where the name of God is, is never mentioned, and yet... Anyone who ever reads the book of Esther would have to come away and say this, God is seen all throughout this story. There are too many crazy things that are happening in this story that just can't be random. It just cannot be coincidence. And so we're going to take the time together to look into this story. And I want to preface today's sermon by saying this. It's going to feel like a history lesson, literally. We're going to go back in time, and we're going to do something beautiful that we don't often do that needs to be done more often. We decided many years ago to homeschool our children, and upon doing that, my wife began to research curriculum. We began to go through home, uh, to homeschool conferences and learn about curriculum. And the one thing that I believe shocked me about the curriculum that we decided on was how beautifully the, the timeline of history uh, in this curriculum was woven in with the Bible. And so what the curriculum did, instead of teaching history separate from the Bible, which is how I got it as a kid in a Christian school, they taught history at the same time with the Bible. Because it's not two different storylines. When you look across the timeline of history, you cannot help but to pause and to recognize how God's hand has been all throughout the timeline and how the Jewish people have been interwoven into the timeline of the Grecians and the Persians and the Babylonians. And and all throughout history, God has kept his people kind of sewn in everything throughout history. It's absolutely amazing. Matter of fact, when... If if you were to look at this timeline along with history and the Bible, I I know I'm a believer, I get that, but I'm hard-pressed to understand why you can't believe that there's a God who sits on the throne and is in charge of everything. When you look at the two things woven together, you don't see Buddha woven, you don't see Muhammad woven, you don't see Joseph Smith woven, you don't see Mary woven, you don't see um, the the apostles woven. There's one storyline that's woven throughout history, not just the 
Bible, and that is the storyline of God and his chosen people, Israel, and his chosen seed, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. It's absolutely phenomenal, and I hope you'll just catch a glimpse of the bigness of God as we walk through this history lesson um, and the Word of God as well. So, so since I am going to give a lot of history tonight, this morning, uh, there's going to be a lot of me being, you know me, you know my style of preaching, you, you know the amount of, um, of uh, memory that I want to use while I preach so I'm not bound, but I'm going to be bound more to notes today uh, than I ever have been. A lot of people have done a lot of work to um, go back and historically put all these points together. And I'm thankful for these people, and I'm drawing from their research and study and my own research and study this morning. So I hope this really encourages you. Secondly, don't get bored. How many of you fell asleep in history classes? Okay, me, all right. I, I, I loved history, but I kind of got groggy every once in a while in history class. And, and, uh, but I am intrigued by these things, and so it's probably one of the few subjects that did keep me awake. English did not, you can tell that, okay. Uh, but I, I, I do enjoy uh, history. So here we go. Uh, let's, let, let's jump into this story. Open your Bibles to Esther chapter number one. And while you do that, let's take a journey back in history. The year is 480 B.C., And a massive Persian army is marching with determination to face rebel forces of the Athens and the Greek allies. And so you're kind of familiar within history of the Persian and Greek battles. The Persians against the Greek. The ancient sources number the Persians at this time in history to be about um, uh, 50, uh, excuse me, about a million soldiers. About 50 million people lived in Persia at the time. And, and, and their sources say there were about a million in their army. Historians say probably hundreds of thousands. But there are a lot of people uh, going to battle against each other. At the time, the Persian Empire stretched from modern-day Libya to, uh, in Africa all the way to the uh, Pakistani border there in Asia. Uh, if you study history, you'd recognize, too, that the Persian Empire was um, outside of Solomon, the greatest landmass empire uh, ever. History says, the best we can tell, that, that, that the Persians had um, this, this massive Um, amazing army that was strategically advanced and better than most of the known world at that time, but they were about to meet their match when they came against the Grecian army. The Persians had conquered, uh, history tells us, the uh, Persians had conquered the Babylonian Chaldean Empire in 539 B.C., and the Persians had settled into domination in the Middle Eastern world, and it lasted, watch this, for 200 years. That's a long span of time to be top dog. Initially, the regions of Greece had been conquered by the Persians under Darius, and that would be back in 550 and following. But Darius's armies had been defeated by the Athenians at the famous Battle of Marathon in 490 B.C. Darius was determined... 
He had decided in his mind that he was going to conquer and he was going to subdue his Greek armies. And he amassed this great army to go back, hoping to pay back the Greeks for the loss that he had suffered at the Battle of Marathon. And the, the word marathon may sound familiar because it was at this battle that one of the men in this battle ran how many miles? Anybody know how many miles a marathon? I know there are different miles, but initially 26 miles in a marathon. This man ran 26 miles is where we get our word marathon from, is from this battle. Very interesting. So the King Darius had this, this great ambition to conquer and to overcome Greece again, to, to wreak havoc upon them, uh, to pay them back for his loss, and then he dies. When Darius dies, a man comes to the throne that sounds a little familiar to us if you're a historian and you love world history, and the king's name is Xerxes. And if I were to say, how many of you have heard the name Xerxes? Probably some of you would remember that from history class and you would raise your hand. So now Xerxes, the son of Darius, is upon the throne of Persia. And he is going to fulfill what his dad had not fulfilled. So one of his first acts was he needed to subdue Egypt. That was vitally important. So he, he subdues Egypt. They're, they're a pain in his neck. They're a thorn in his side. He gets that settled, and now he's going to finish what his dad started. He's going to amass an army. He's going to go and attack Greece and conquer it once and for all, set everybody straight. Prior to this moving, he puts together a planning meeting with his leaders. After the meeting with his leaders, he takes this army of only 250,000 men, thinking he's going to, with this small army and precision army, going to conquer Greece. He goes in, and he is defeated once and for all. Some of you may recognize some of this information. They, they go to this battle in Greece, and, and there are ma many famous battles. The Battle of Thermopylae, 300 Spartans. Uh, you may recognize, matter of fact, there's a movie out about that. I haven't watched it, but, but, but there's a movie about this particular battle. You may remember the Battle of Salmis, where it is said that the Persian, almost the entire Persian navy was obliterated by the Greeks, and they lost as many, think about this, in that day and time, 300 warships were sunk during that time of the Persian army. So now Xerxes goes back home with his head between his tail. He has been defeated. They've now, they now are retreating, and, and, and they're heading back. And, and all this information is important because this is where the story of Esther fits into the timeline of world geography, it, 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 world history. It, it, it's just pretty amazing if you see all of this. Now, now, this man Xerxes is very interesting because that's not the name biblically that we would be familiar with. The Greeks called him Xerxes, but his Persian name was Kashyarsha. Okay, um, so the Persian king would be Kashyarsha, and in the Hebrew, that name would be a little bit different. It'd be Ashkashvarash. Okay, sounds like a clothing line, right? And uh, uh, but 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 that that would be his name. But the name that we have written in our English Bible today is the name Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus is Xerxes. Ahasuerus in our English Bible is the great emperor, the great king, the great ruler, Xerxes of the Persian Empire. And what is so amazing about this man 
is, is not only does he have great power and prestige, not only does he uh, have the ability to amass a great army and is a powerful ruler, but this little orphan Jewish girl captures this powerful king's heart. And because of that, Esther, a Jew, becomes the queen of one of the greatest empires ever known to man. Esther, the Jewish queen. This is where we pick up in this story. Notice the banquet that's being put together. This is that gathering where, can I call him Xerxes, and sometimes I may call him Ahasuerus, but where he puts together and calls in all the great leaders, and they strategically plan for this period of time to, to uh, go down to Greece, okay? And at this great uh, gathering and this war strategy session, at the end of it, they go into a seven-day banquet. And so let's pick up uh, together, if we can, in the book of Esther. By the way, before we read here, recognize Esther did not write the book of Esther, okay? I I just want to make sure we're clear on that. You say, who did? There is no record of its author. It may have been Mordecai, since he was so in tune with all the details of the story. I would assume that. But also at the same time, there were two prophets living, Ezra and Nehemiah, who also wrote books, and they may have gotten the information and wrote the details. But, but we don't know necessarily who the author is of this book. But here's what we do know, which is pretty amazing. For you history buffs and critics, the, the story that we have written down and dates and timings and everything line up very, very, uh, almost identically with the Persian record books that were kept. The Persians were like meticulous, and you're going to see that later in the story, at writing down all their records. And, and so the fact that the book of Esther and the Persian notes and records line up it, it is a pretty amazing thing. But, but let's together look at Esther chapter Number one, now it came to pass, verse one, in the days of Ahasuerus, okay, Xerxes. This is Ahasuerus, which reigned from India even unto Ethiopia over an hundred and seven and twenty providences. That in those days when the king Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the palace. By the way, there's another name for that you'll see in history books, Susa, S-U-S-A. In the third year of his reign, he made a feast unto all his princesses and servants, the power of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of the provinces being before him. And when he had showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the honor of his excellent majesty many days, even in 104 score days, almost six months this, um, this meeting went on, and then the seven-we-a-day banquet. And, the, and when these days were expired, the king made a feast unto all the people that were present in Shushan the palace, both unto great and small, seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. Okay? So, so you understand now the historical importance of sharing that information. This is Xerxes. He's had this almost six-month-long planning meeting with all the greatest powers that he is uh, connected with and over and ruling to show off his kingdom, to show off his power and put together his plan to go down and conquer the Greeks. And at the end of this meeting, seven days of feasting, 
cursing, of drunkenness, of sexual immorality, of wickedness and vile living goes on in this seven days. Eating, drinking, eating, drinking, living um, and, and wickedness, eating, drinking, drunkenness, seven days of this constant way of living is what is taking place. At the end of the seventh day, he calls for Vashti, his queen, to come and stand before all this congregation of great leaders and powerful people. Now, Vashti, you know the story, refuses to go in unto the king. She's worried um, that maybe the king would have her do something that was inappropriate in the midst of his drunkenness. But some historians believe that she was actually pregnant at the time with um, Artaxerxes. Okay, so, so there's this, this, this um, debate whether uh, she didn't go in because of her pregnancy or she didn't go in because she uh, didn't want her modesty to be uh, uh, broken in front of all these, these men. But whatever the case is, at this moment, this man Xerxes and his temper takes over, and basically he comes to this conclusion. If you finish reading chapter 1, um, you'll recognize that he said that this is not going to happen. This kind of rebellion can't happen. The leader said, you can't let this happen. Watch, if this happens, it may spark a women's liberation movement. We have got to prove a point. Here and now, and so he does, and he says, I reject you from being my queen. Get out of my court. Get out of my house. You're gone. I'm going to pick a new queen. And so that's chapter number one in a nutshell. It's after chapter number one that Xerxes goes to battle against Greece. So now you're connecting the timeline and the dates. Now he has no queen. He gathers this army. They go down to attack the Grecian army, and they're defeated. Two years it takes for this to happen. Now he comes back to the palace, and we pick up with chapter number two. Everybody together? I don't want to bore you, but this to, to watch God working in the timeline of history is absolutely amazing. So, so, so stay with me, and I'll probably say that a hundred times and it, because it's just so cool. Uh, notice verse number one. After these things, when the wrath of the king Ahasuerus was appeased, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what was decreed against her. Then said the king's servants that ministered unto him, let there be fair young virgins sought for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all provinces of his kingdom that they may gather together all the fair young virgins unto Shushan the palace, to the house of the women, unto the custody of the hedge of the king's chamberlain, keeper of the women, and let there be things for purification be given him. So, so you can see now in chapter number two this, this process to appease uh, King uh, Xerxes. And, and it's really interesting if we look in this story what is now going to take place. Now, now remember, at this time, historically, it is said that there's about 50 million people alive uh, that are a part of the Persian kingdom. So we can come to a conclusion, or historians have, that there's probably 20 to 25 million females a part of this 50 million uh, group of individuals. 
that, that, that can include kids and teenagers and young adults and older women as well, uh, but there are about 25 million. Now, um, what is interesting, it takes about a year for them to assemble um, what is said historically by Josephus about 400 virgins that were brought to the kingdom for this preparation process to begin. Okay, so, so, so you got the story. This is a massive kingdom. When you think about it, you're talking Ethiopia, modern-day Libya. Think about that on a map. All the way up to Pakistan is how large this nation of Persia was. And so they send out these um, individuals to go out from uh, province to province, city to city, um, uh, place to place and, and find what they believe are the most beautiful women in the land. And they bring all 400 in. And the Bible says in chapter 2 that for the next year, um, they're going to go through a beautification process. Now, I know Mary Kay and I've walked past the beauty cosmetic aisle here in, in Walmart and seen all the gear okay, and the stuff. I've watched my wife uh, special order her stuff in and, and, and from catalogs and from different places, and, and I've watched her this morning, Sunday morning, get prepared and take a little bit of this and a little bit of that and j- j- just a little, not overdoing it, and put a little bit of this here and a little bit of that there and a little bit of primping there. I've oftentimes thought you can keep pulling at it. It's really not changing a thing. Okay, yeah, I got to be careful. I'm just kidding. It looks great. And, uh, but I've seen her doing that. I'm just kidding, darling. It, it's, it's beautiful, right? And, uh, but, you know, you, but, but from a guy's standpoint, I mean, we're just wiping it down and walking out, right? And, and, and unless you have a beautiful beard uh, like you do, then you take time uh, cleaning and oiling. You oil your beard uh, sometimes. But I guess the Bible says that they bought spices and ointments and all these things for beautification, and they would oil their hair and prepare of the hair, and they gave them a year, and they assigned to them different eunuchs and helpers uh, to, or excuse me, concubines and helpers and servants to help these individual ladies do this. And not only that, they would take them to um, a place to give them proper um, court etiquette. Um, I, I'll never forget the I Love Lucy episode where she got to meet the queen and she was trying to learn how to curtsy and she gets stuck in a cramp. It's hilarious. But uh, that kind of etiquette was being given to what um, these ladies would know to do when they walked into the presence of royalty in the courtyard or in the king's court and how to act and how to carry themselves. And it took about a year to go through this and then probably another span of time before we finally get down to Esther. And I want to take the time uh, to look at Esther chapter 2 and verse 16 and 17, if you would, uh, with me. Esther chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. The, The Bible says, so Esther was taken unto King Ahasuerus into his royal uh, to his house royal in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. And the king loved Esther above all the women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. I find this amazing. Amazing. 20 to 25 million women whittled down to 400. 
That's still a lot of women. I, I have a little comedic bone in my body, and one of my favorite, and again, I, it, I reference these things, but one of my favorite uh, Disney films is The Emperor's New Groove. And you remember the part where they're trying to find him a queen? Not you. Uh-uh. Never mind. No way. Okay, he's just kind of flipping through. Can you imagine the king sitting upon his throne? The first one's brought in. Nope. The second one, uh-uh. You need to spend another year. Okay, whatever the case is, he's flipping through the pages, right? And, and, and can you imagine the blur? At what point do 400 women start to really become a blur? And then I'm serious. I'm not even being funny at that. I mean, I mean, it, it only it doesn't take too long looking at another person and another person and another person before they all start to look the same and, and, and what is happening. But the Bible says when Esther walks in, there was something about her that captivated the, the ruler. The, think about this, the ruler of the world. That is unbelievable. Now Esther has caught the eye of Xerxes. Ahasuerus is captivated by this woman. She must have been a very, very special, special lady. It's almost beyond what we could even put together in a Cinderella story. Esther has now stolen his heart and is exalted to the highest position that any woman in the entire world could have at that particular time. An obscure Jewish orphan girl that, that, that has now become uh, a powerful individual through the affections of an emperor. Esther keeps her Jewish descent a secret at the um, request of Mordecai. We'll talk about him in just a moment. Now, um, it's interesting to know, and, and, and we need to be sure we, we, we understand who Mordecai is. Uh, Mordecai and Esther would have been taken captive, not them individually more than likely because of the time schedule that we have, but their families would have been taken by King Nebuchadnezzar into captivity. And you remember that Cyrus the Great, when he came on the scene, uh, set the Jews free and let them go back uh, to their native country to, to rebuild and to uh, erect cities again, even to build the second temple. And so now they've gone back, but some of these Jews stayed within the nation and their families grew up and they had children and grandchildren and they still lived among the people who had taken them captivity for whatever reason. Now Mordecai and Esther would have been two of the people who stayed within the vicinity. Now, we've all I've done this wrongly. I've called Mordecai her uncle, but according to scripture, now that I read it and study it, remember, uh, uh, he is he is not her uncle. He is the son of her uncle, which would make him her cousin. Okay, so Mordecai is the cousin, not the uncle, but somewhere along the line, Esther's mom and dad are killed. Okay, now Esther's an orphan, and Mordecai's about 15 years older than Esther, and Mordecai takes Esther in and takes care of her from the time she was an orphan child. And so technically, Mordecai would be that um, father figure or at least that authority figure in her life. By the way, there's an interesting statement that um, when, when Mordecai tells Esther, don't tell them who you are, I love this line. And teenagers, it really jumped off the page at me um, it, w- w- when I read this. It, the, the words literally say in the King James that Esther did everything Mordecai had commanded. And here was the cool thing, as she always did. 
I thought, wow, that is a cool line. Because uh, Esther submitted to Mordecai and did as he led all those years that he had been her father figure, now uh, through her learning to submit to his authority, it's going to help translate her to what she's going to be used to do as God takes her and moves her forward. In some of, and, and one of the most significant moments in Jewish history, Esther says, Okay, Mordecai, I got it. I'll do this. Isn't that amazing? So now Esther and Mordecai, end of chapter 2, are officially introduced to the kingdom. And because Esther's the queen, more than likely, she works out a deal to get Mordecai to be a part of the kingdom. And now Mordecai is sitting at, the Bible says, the king's gate. So, so some, we don't know for sure. There can be an assumption maybe because there was a family connection or maybe because Esther Geit gave him some kind of position in leadership. Now he's sitting at the king's gate where he shouldn't have been and now that he is, okay? While he's at the king's gate, ready for this? I love, I'm, I'm going to use this word a lot. He happens to hear, okay? He happens to overhear something that is going to be super significant on a couple of chapters, He's sitting at the gate, and a couple of the king's men are um, talking about how they are going to kill and destroy. Um, and th- again, this is in chapter 2, how they're going to kill and destroy Xerxes. There's an assassination plot being discussed by two individuals by the gate. Look at chapter number 2 and verse 21 and 23. Chapter number 2 and verse 21 and 20, uh, t- uh, through 23. In those days, while Mordecai sat in the king's gate, two of the king's chamberlains, Bigtham and Teresh, of those which kept the door were wroth. They were mad. They were angry and sought to lay hand on King Ahasuerus. And the thing was known to Mordecai, who told it unto Esther the queen. And Esther cert- uh, certified the king thereof Mordecai, in Mordecai's name. And when inquisition was made of the matter, it was found out. Therefore, they were both hanged on a tree, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles before the king. It seems little, but this is huge in a couple of chapters. Do you see God's hand behind the scenes setting Moving, working. Watch what happens. We're now moving on to chapter number three, which introduces the next main character of the story. Uh, The next main character, can anybody give us the villain's name? Haman. Here's the story uh, of the villain of the story, okay? Uh, This is a man who had been exalted by the king. He he was a capable man. He was a Persian man. He is a powerful man who had been lifted up above every other prince in the kingdom. There was Xerxes and now Queen Esther, but even in power, secondly to Xerxes, Haman. Okay, so you understand the order of power within the kingdom. Okay, here we go. Um, th- there's something interesting about, though, this whole story that, that I don't want you to miss historically, okay? Uh, notice what the Bible says. Look at chapter 3 and verse number 1. Chapter 3 and verse number 1. The Bible says this. After these things did King Ahasuerus promote Haman, the son of Hamadatha. Notice the next two words. The Agathite and advanced him and set his seat above all the princesses that were with him. The word agathite, where does that word come from? 
All right, well, let, let's talk about it for a minute, okay? Uh, let, let's get an understanding why this is relevant. Matter of fact, it's so relevant that it's said multiple times, Haman the Agathite, Haman the Agathite, Haman the Agathite, over and over again in this story, Haman the Agathite. Why is that important? Notice here, we have to go back about, I would say, almost a 1,000 years historically uh, to the exodus from Egypt. The Israelites are now coming out of Egypt. It's around 1445 B.C., and they are attacked by who? Who attacks the Israelites? Anybody remember? The Amalekites. So, so now the Amalekites have attacked Israel. There's this great battle, all right, and the Amalekites are the descendants of who? Anybody know? Esau heard some whispers. Esau, okay, uh, the Amalekites are the descendants of Esau, all right, so, um, and uh, he, but by the way, he's the one that sold his birthright. Because the Amalekite attacked the Jews in the wilderness, God puts a curse on the Amalekites and basically says this, um, your descendants are going to be wiped off the face of the planet. Your descendants are going to be extinct. You'll find that in Deuteronomy chapter number 25. Four centuries later, King Saul is told to conquer who? How? To wipe them off the planet. Okay, I know that sounds like why would God let uh, somebody destroy a whole entire nation of people? Because God is sovereign. God does know those who will trust or those who will rebel. He in his sovereignty understands all of that. And in his plan and design, he says, wipe them off the planet. They will reject me. They will continue to be a thorn in your side and in your flesh. Rid yourself of them. But you remember the story? Saul disobeyed. Because of the pressure of the people, Saul kept King who? Agag. Saul kept King Agag alive. And, and, and remember, Samuel comes and, and says, Saul, did you do it? Wait a minute, what is this bleeding I hear? Remember, God said, kill them all, kill their livestock, wipe them off the face of the planet. Instead, Saul left Agag alive, and he left the sheep and the oxen alive as well. And Samuel hears the bleeding of the sheep, and he says, Saul, why did you do this? You have rejected God, and so God is going to reject you. And God rejects Saul from being the king of Israel, and that's when the line of David, remember, is started. Okay, um, it is Samuel, the prophet, a Benjamite, who takes King Agag and chops him into pieces. And I know that sounds gory, but, but he's following God's command. And so he chops him into pieces. And now we find, a couple of centuries later, a Benjamite by the name of Mordecai sitting at the gate who gets passed by Haman the Agathite. Now, you and I don't keep up with our genealogy very well, but we can assume, as a matter of fact, we don't have to assume, we know that they did. They're very, very familiar, and there would have been animosity, and there would have been resentment and anger and bitterness between the Benjamites and the Agathites all the way down the line. Now, we're not 100% sure if this is what created the hatred, but we know from day one, all Haman does is walk by Mordecai, and he hates him. He despises him, but there is family history in the midst of all of this. So notice here, if you would, in chapter 3 and verse number 2, uh, the Bible says in chapter 3 and verse number 2, notice the story here, uh, very, again, very interesting. And all the king's servants that were in the king's gate bowed and reverenced Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him, but Mordecai bowed not. 
and, and, nor did him any reverence. The king's servants, which were in the king's gate, said unto Mordecai, Why transgressest thou the king's commandment? Now it came to pass when they spake daily unto him, and he hearkened not unto them, that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's matters would stand. For he had them that he was a Jew, had, for he had told them that he was a Jew. So now we understand that Haman does know who Mordecai is and is familiar with Mordecai's lineage and now uh, recognizes that Mordecai is not paying him any respect or any reverence at all Okay, it's not bowing down to him. Notice verse 5. And when Haman saw that Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence, then, then was Haman full of wrath. And he, and he thought scorn to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had showed him the people of Mordecai. Now, he, and it, what this means is he thought, I just, can't, I just can't kill Mordecai. Because if I kill Mordecai, he is a part of a great people, and they may reap their vengeance on me. And so the Bible says he was scorned to think that. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to kill the whole lot of them. I'm going to wipe the Jewish nation off the planet. We're going we're gonna to seek out every city and every province and every place in the kingdom and outside, and we're going to destroy and kill every one of them on a certain day. And so what he does is he gets with the astrologers, and he says, hey, go with me and look at the stars, and let's pick the best day to make this happen. And so the astrologers go, and they pick the best day to make this happen, and then he gets all his information together, and he goes before Xerxes. Hey, Xerxes, there's a people that are a thorn in our side. They're going to be a thorn in your side. They might even raise up in rebellion against you. They're doing it toward me. Um, how would you feel if I wiped them off the planet? And, and um, that, that is a summarization, you understand. Upon which the arrogant Xerxes says, sure, do it. And so here's what they do. They have their own Pony Express and Camel Express, okay, all right, and Donkey Express. Literally, the, the Bible says that in chapter 3. And, and the king writes letters, and Haman takes the king's signet ring, puts the wax on the letter, and presses every one of them. And they send it, and they go from city to city. When that horse gets wore out, they go on a new horse, and they go further and further and further all over the providence, all the way from Africa, all the way up to Pakistan, or Libya to Pakistan, and and, and shares this information on this day, without their knowledge, we're going to rise up and kill them all. By the way, this is not the work of Haman. This is the work of Satan. Satan, since he had him, himself put in place in the garden in Genesis chapter number 3 and was told that someday there's going to come one, you may bruise his heel, but his heel is going to crush your head. And Satan knows who that is, has been trying to stop the work of God all along the way. Because if you wipe out the Jews, you wipe out the Messiah. You wipe out the Christ. And so this process is taking place, and that is chapter number three. I hope no one's bored yet because I'm not. I'm pretty stoked. Man, I've never taught a college class. I don't know if I'd be any good at it, but I think it would be cool maybe someday to teach history, all right? So, so, so watch what's happening. Chapter three, now Haman is starting his, his evil plan. Notice next, verse number eight and verse number nine of chapter three. The Bible says, and by the way, these are, I know you said we're going through the whole book. Yes, hang with me, but they're really short chapters. Verse number 8 and verse number 9. 
The Bible says, Write ye also for the Jews as it liketh you in the king's name and seal it with the king's ring. For the writing which is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's ring may, uh, may no man reverse. Then were the king's scribes called at that time in the third month, that is, the month of Sivan, on the three and twentieth day thereof, and it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded unto the Jews and to the lieutenants and to the deputies. Wait a minute, am I in the wrong chapter? I am. That, that, that's, that's the reversal chapter. Uh, I looked. I don't have my glasses on. That eight looked like a three to me. All right, so here we go. Here we go. Let me go back. Isn't it funny how those two verses actually do uh, line up? And so uh, chapter three, verses eight and nine. Let's do it together. Why didn't y'all yell? All right, here we go. And Haman said unto Ahasuerus, there's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of the kingdom, and their laws are diverse from all people. Neither keep they the king's laws. Therefore, it is not for the king's prophet to suffer them. Do not let them hang around any longer. It's not going to do you any good. Let's wipe them off the planet. That's chapter number three. Let's move on to chapter number four. The Jews get the word. In verse number three, they hear, and the Bible says they began to weep, they began to fast, they began to cry, they began to wear sackcloth and wrap themselves and waddle themselves in ashes. It was a way of mourning. They're starting to show as they, they hear word secretly that this is going to happen to all their people. Word is starting to get out when Mordecai hears about the plan. By the way, chapter four is this turning point in this plot put together by Haman. When Mordecai heard about the genocide decree, he, the, the Bible says he tore his clothes, he dressed in rags, he put ashes upon his head, he mourned openly, he mourned publicly at this horrendous act. And then what happens now is people hear and watch Mordecai going through this and word gets up the chain to Esther that, that, that he's all messed up. And so in chapter 4, verse 8, she gets the message. Read it with me. Chapter 4 and verse number 8, the Bible says this, the word of God said, also he gave them a copy of the writing, the decree that was given at Shushan to destroy them, to show it unto Esther and to declare it unto her and to charge her that she should go in unto the king to make supplication unto him and to make requests before him and for her people. So, so, so what happens is um, uh, he begins to mourn and to cry and to weep, and, and, and he sends information, and other people go tell Esther what's going on. And, and so she, he writes this letter to her and says, hey, Esther, you've got to do something. And she returns the letter and says, you're crazy. Xerxes is a nut. I mean, haven't you heard about this man's temper? Didn't you see what he did to Vashti? Haven't you heard what he did when they tried to build the bridge from the Black Sea to the Mediterranean Sea? That is one of the big movements of Xerxes. He builds this bridge uh, so that they can cross from one piece of land over to another. And, and while doing that, the rivers, or the, the ocean rages and destroys the bridge before they ever can use it. The story is told that Xerxes was so angry that he went and cursed the sea. Okay, Not only that, he made his soldiers get into the water and lash it 300 times. Not only that, he, uh, the story is told that he took hot irons and poked the sea with the hot irons and then made his soldiers throw handcuffs into the ocean to bind it. The man's a nut. He's crazy. He's got a sick temper. 
okay? And so you can understand now the fear of Esther when she's like, no, no, there are laws in the kingdom. And if anybody goes before the king without permission or being called, and he doesn't take that scepter and set it forth giving permission, they're taken and killed. No, Mordecai, I can't do this. Upon which you know the famous line, Mordecai gets that letter, and then he writes a second letter back to Esther. And he tells Esther, Esther, you're, you're not going to escape this just because you're in the kingdom. You're a Jew. I'm a Jew. Our family, they're Jews. And you're going to die. And I trust God enough to know that he will provide a way because he promised he would. But that doesn't rescue you and me. Whether you do this or not, you are going to die. Or maybe this is the moment where God has put you in this spot, in this place, for such a time as this. Ruth, maybe you're just beautiful because God made you beautiful so that the king would pick you and put you in this moment. For such a time as this. That takes us to that title, Once Upon a Time, a moment in history. We have Esther at this spot right now. And her courage replies, in courage, she replies to Mordecai and she says this Okay, get everybody together, tell them to fast and pray for three days, and I'm gonna go before the king. And if I die, I die. And that's her statement in chapter number four. So let's move on now to chapter number five. So the Bible says she approaches the throne, and it must have been this crazy tense moment. Can you imagine? She's probably all dressed up again. She's probably got the right perfumes on. The hair is fixed really pretty, and she, she's trying to be sure that she's ready for this moment. She has prayed. She has fasted. The people have prayed. The people have fasted, and she walks. And I, we don't exactly know necessarily, I don't, how the courtyard was laid out, but she makes herself viewable from a distance to the king. And, and, and the Bible says this that he, he says unto her, what do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? And I love the next line, and it shall be given unto you even unto the half of the kingdom. And so Esther walks in the door, and the story's told. As a matter of fact, open your Bibles to chapter number 5. Uh, I know you're there, and verse number 5. Chapter 5 and verse number 5. Then the king said, calls, uh, actually, let's back up. Um, verse number two, and it was so when the king saw Esther the queen standing in the court that she obtained favor in his sight, and the king held out, the, uh, held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. So Esther drew near and touched, and, and, and touched the top of the scepter. Then said the king unto her, wilt thou, What wilt thou, Queen Esther, and what is thy request? It shall be even given to thee uh, to the half of the kingdom. And, answer, and, and, and here's what Esther answered. If it seemed good unto the king, uh, let the king and Haman come this day unto the banquet that I have prepared for him. So, so Esther has prepared this banquet, this meal, this gathering time, and says, hey, look, all I want is for you and Haman together to come. And it's assumed that at this first banquet, she is going to share what Haman is trying to do to the Jewish people. 
Okay, some pastors and some preachers and some um, commentators said that maybe she had this plan. I don't know if I necessarily agree. Have you ever been in one of those moments with your mom and dad, Ren? You ever been in one of those moments with mom and dad and you wanted to ask something of your mom and dad? You don't lie in church, girl. And uh, uh, you don't lie anywhere, but this button, I'm just kidding. Uh, but but you, you, you come to me and mom and you want to ask us a favor. You want to ask us to do something, but you recognize that daddy's not in a good mood. Have you ever recognized that and kind of went, I'll wait? Okay, so I kind of believe that is what's going on in the passage. She calls them together for a banquet. They, they get to the banquet. It's just Haman, the king. And can you imagine Haman's pride now? What? I got a special invite to the banquet? Man, this is, this is crazy. I mean, so Haman shows up, and they're sitting there together, and the king says again, okay, Esther, we're here. What do you want even under the half of the kingdom? At that moment, I have to wonder if Esther recognized something in the room, some kind of uneasiness. Maybe it was a plan to do this in a two-day cycle to kind of break him down. I don't know. Wives, only you know how you do that. Daughters, you only know, and sons, how you do that with your parents. You kind of uh, butter them up a little bit to break them. Guys, you know how you, you, you want to go to that game or go to that event, and you kind of butter her up and break her down before you ask. You, you know what I'm talking about. I don't know if that was her plan. I don't know if she saw something in the moment that kind of thwarted the plan, but whatever the case, she says, no, 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 let's do it this way. Will you come back tomorrow? I'm going to make another banquet for you and Haman. And she agrees, and this was so significant. However God moved for this plan to happen was significant. Haman goes home on his way home, he bumps into Mordecai again. The rage just goes up in his heart because of the way Mordecai acts toward him. He goes into the house and tells all of his family, Haman does what Mordecai does, and they're like, you need to hang this man. He's going to be a thorn in your flesh. And so he tells his boys to go outside and prepare a gallows to hang him. Whether they, I, I can't remember at the moment, to be honest, whether they did that that evening or the next morning, I believe, they went out and prepared the gallows to hang Mordecai on. He returns back to the banquet. But during the night, while Haman is planning his demise for Mordecai and probably gloating in his power, King Xerxes is having a sleepless night. Hmm. Imagine that. He's, he's, he's pacing. He, he can't fall asleep. Maybe it's a full moon and the room's lit up and he just can't. I don't know what it is, but, 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 but the Bible says he can't sleep. And so in order to fall asleep, he calls for the records to be read. And so they bring the records. Now, the records weren't just the recent. It was the records. And, and you ready? And they just happen to during the night while he just couldn't happen to sleep, they just happen to read the records of Mordecai telling about the assassination plot against the king. He reads, or it's read to him, and then he says, whoa, 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 stop right there. Read that again? And so they read the story again. He's like, hey, I'm just curious. This guy saved my life. Those guys were my chamberlains, man. They could have snuck in any time and killed me, and no one would have known about it. But Mordecai exposed it, and we hung them. Did anybody ever reward him in the kingdom at that day? Reward was just as important as consequence. Reward was just as important as 
Vashti being moved out because of her rebellion. And he's like, did, did anybody reward Mordecai? They're like, nope, nope, nobody rewarded. Remember when that happened, things in your life happened, and we just never got around to it? Huh. I don't know if he falls asleep then, but the Bible says he gets up the next morning, and Haman shows up early. Haman's heading in the door. The Bible says to ask Xerxes, can he go hang Mordecai? Hey, Xerxes, I got a question. Oh, no, no, no. But before you ask me that, I've got a question for you. What would you do for the man that pleases the king? Can you imagine Haman? Oh, man. Oh, what would I do for me? I mean, for him that pleases the king. I would take the king's robe and drape it on him. And I would put him on the king's horse. And I would put the king's signet on him. And I would walk him all throughout the royal city, pronouncing that the king basically loves this man. This, this man is important to the king. Bow down to him. He said, man, that's a great idea, Haman. That is an awesome idea. Will you do me a favor? Would you personally, I love this story. It blows my mind. I, I just love the story. Hey, Haman, will you personally go get Mordecai? Mordecai? Yeah, go get Mordecai. He helped save my life, put the robe on him, put the signet ring on him, put him on my horse, and walk him through town and tell everybody to bow down to him. I mean, to me, that is just, it is so amazing. And so sure enough, I mean, the Bible says this man is absolutely distraught. I mean, wouldn't you be? I mean, this man was just tore all up inside, and he's walking around, bow down to him, bow, bow down. You know, I mean, can you imagine his attitude as he's leading this horse along, having everybody, this, this party, this entourage, this parade for Mordecai? Crazy. Notice what the Bible says, and I love this stuff. It's so amazing. You have to look at things like this and wonder, um, does God have a sense of humor? That is, that is chapter number 6 of the book of Esther. Um, and, and you can see that. Look at chapter 6, verses 6 through 9. Chapter 6, verses 6 through 9. Notice what the Word of God says. It says, so Haman came in, and the king said unto him, What shall be done unto the man whom the king delighteth to honor? Now Haman thought it in his heart, To whom would the king delight to honor more than myself? And Haman answered the king, For the man who the king delighteth to honor, let the royal apparel be broad, which the king uh, useth to wear, and the horse that the king rideth upon, and the crown royal which is set upon his head. Sorry, um, I, I swapped these. A signet ring was for the letters to be stamped that Mordecai is going to use a little, I mean, yeah, a little bit later. It's actually the crown. And let this apparel... Um, and let this apparel and horse be delivered to the hand of the one of the king's most noble princesses, that they may array the man with all whom the king delighted to honor, and bring him on horseback through the street of the city, and proclaim before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delighted to honor. Then the king said, Haman, make haste and go do it for Mordecai. It's just an amazing story. And that brings us to chapter number 7, banquet number 2. The Bible says in verse number one, so the king and Haman came to the banquet with Esther the queen, and the king said unto Esther, uh, uh, said again unto Esther the second day at the banquet of wine, what is thy petition, Queen Esther, and it shall be granted to thee even what is thy request, and it shall be performed even to the half of the kingdom. Then Esther the queen answered and said, he's ready. I have, if I have found favor in thy sight, O king, and if it please the king, 
Let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request, for we are sold, I and my people, to be destroyed and to be slain and to perish. But if we had been sold for bondmen and bondwomen, I, I, I would have held my tongue, although the enemy could not countervail the king's damage. So, so, so basically, the, uh, Queen Esther recognizes, okay, now's the time, and she says this, King, if it would, would you spare my life? And would you spare the life of my people? Because there's someone in your kingdom who has plotted against me and my people. And, 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 and if he wanted us to be servants and slaves, we'd have done that without argument. You're worthy of it. But he wants to kill us and destroy us. And can you imagine all of a sudden Haman sitting at the table and he's thinking, oh, no. She's a Jew. Certainly she can't be a Jew. And so the king says, who has done this toward my queen and her people? And Esther raises her finger and says, Haman, that evil man Haman. The Bible says at that moment, Xerxes gets up from the table. You notice they don't sit like we do. They're laying on couches and beds around a table, eating like on the floor. And he stands up and he stomps out into his gardens. And when he does this, Haman turns to the queen and she gets at his, her ankles and probably grabs her feet and says, don't do this. He's going to kill me. And now the Bible says he's begging for his life. Please, when King Xerxes walks back in and sees him, and in his mind the Bible says he thinks she's attacking or, or that he is attacking her and trying to hurt her in, in multiple ways and immediately loses it and blows his top and calls in his soldiers. They put a bag over his head. The Bible says they literally cover his head. They take him out and they hang him from the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Unbelievable story. The Bible is just amazing when it takes the timeline of history and weaves in God's sovereign plan all through it. This, this is no joke. You couldn't make this up if you tried. Unbelievable how God is working in this story. Notice what happens next. That's, that's chapter number 7. And now we're going to go to chapter number 8 for the sake of time. We want to move on quickly. The king said basically to the queen, so sorry this happened. And, and, and word for word it says, take all of Haman's property and it's yours. Everything. Haman's house, Haman's power, everything, and it's yours. And the, the Bible says the queen immediately said, nope, uh, I thank you for that, but I'm going to give it to Mordecai. So within a moment's time, Mordecai is elevated to the position of Haman. The Bible says he is the second most powerful prince in the land. So now what has God done? Check this out. God has taken Jews, promised Jews, and put them into the second position of power of the whole world. You say, is that the first time that's happened? No, it's not. God took a Jew, Joseph, and put him in the position of the second most powerful spot in the whole world when Egypt ruled. Is that the only time that's happened? No. God took Daniel and put him in the second position of the most powerful nation of the world. Why would we doubt God? 
The Bible is not some insignificant passage that is separated from the history of the world. The Bible is woven through the history of the world. God is on the throne, whether we like it or not, and he is in charge, and he is sovereign over all, and when we can't see him and his name is not mentioned, he is at work, whether we like it or not. He is a great, wonderful God. And chapter number 8 goes on to tell us briefly that Haman says, basically, um, now we've got to move and save our people. And the king says, but I can't back up on a decree that I've already made. Once it's signed into order, it's the law of the land that it cannot be flipped. But here's what I'll do. Why don't you send out another bunch of letters and the Pony and Camel Express, and we're going to go out there, and we're going to tell the Jews what is coming so that they can prepare for battle, so they can arm themselves, so they can get ready so when the attack comes, they can defend themselves. And whatever they win, they get to have for spoil. I did make that law, but I'm also going to make another law, and I'm going to let them know that if they're Persian, they don't have to fight. You can. I told you you could, but I'm telling you, you don't have to. And so now all this is happening in chapter number 8. In chapter number 9, they send out all the letters, and the people hear, and they're excited. And as a matter of fact, the Bible says they go to war. And at this time, think about this, 75,000 Persians are killed by the Jews. Not in just kind of some random slaughter, but in battle to protect themselves. All of this is happening. Haman's sons, 10 of them, are all wiped off the planet. And then later dead, hung at the gallows. Why? To show the power that God has. And not only that, the Bible says the nation of Persia began to recognize that through Mordecai and through Mordecai's people that God was sovereign. Do you see what our Lord's doing? He takes everyday circumstances and everyday things in our lives and he's able to work them together for good according to his purpose and plan. For his glory. Chapter 10, let's read verses 1 through 3. Chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. Here's what the Bible says. My soul is weary of my life. I will leave my complaint upon myself. I will speak in the bitterness. I, what? How in the world did my Bible get to the book of Job? Holy smoke. First chapter 10 and verse number 1. David the youngest sitting over there, that's what you get for using a, uh, a, an iPad instead of an actual Bible. Yeah. Oh, man, you guys are so right sometimes. I'm like, oh, my word. Here we go. Chapter 1, chapter 10, verse 1. And the king Ahasuerus laid a tribute upon the land and upon the isles of the sea and all the acts of his power and of his might and the declaration of the greatness of Mordecai, wherein to the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was next unto the king Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, and great among the Jews, and accepted of the multitude of his brethren, seeking the wealth of his people, and speaking peace to all of his seed. What a powerful verse, y'all. God is so amazing. This is the close of this story. Was God seen? Yes. Is God working even when we don't see him? Yes. 
And I know the world seems crazy right now. You, you, say, you say, how do you tie that into this? Well, I, I, I do it this way. In my heart, my God changes not. His sovereignty didn't end when Jesus hit the cross. He's not finished working among his people, the Jews, and now his church. God is still um, alive and well, and he's still in control. And you can get all out of whack because Biden's president, or you can stop and quit trying to manipulate politics because you can't control it anyway. And rest in a big God and do what you're told to do now to live here on earth. We can try to gripe and complain and alter government. And I'm not being Democratic or Republican. I think there's some Republican nuts out there. Okay, they, they've lost their ever-loving minds. That is not the answer to the day's problem. But I'm telling you, whether it's Republican or Democrat or Independent or what's this new movement, it's... It, it, I'm, I'm listening to the radio, and they've now started a new political party here in the state of Arizona. I, I, I don't know what it is, but I don't have to worry. I, I've been given a commandment by God to live a certain way, to act a certain way, to be bold in certain moments, to be clear on the Word of God at certain times, to raise my family, to lead them in the direction that God has given to us. And, and, and I don't have to worry about these things, even when I don't see God working. And, I, and if I were to sit here and think, this nation's just as wicked as it's ever been, that might be true. But God is still working. And he is still on the throne, and he's still alive and well, and he has a plan and a purpose. And I want us to see just quickly before we close, I, I, I knew this first one was going to be long to walk through this history, but I'm just going to hit it and we're going to run. Ready? Five things we're going to talk about in the next two weeks to come. Number one, his providence is at work in every detail, even when we don't see him. His providence is at work. That, that means the care of God. The word providence means care. He is working in his power and his goodness, and he's caring for us. We see that in the story. He filtered out 25 million women down to 400 and then down to one. What are the odds of that? That that one would be a Jew, that Jew would become a Persian queen, that Mordecai was at the right place at the right time at the gate to hear the right plot. Okay? How do you assemble that without the providence of God? A king who couldn't sleep chose above all things to do that night but to happen to read the articles that were written down concerning Mordecai. And of all the records to read, he read the one that needed to move to action, something that needed to happen so that the queen could come in and share the info. We serve an amazing providential God. Number two, his presence is seen even in the complexity of the story. The Bible says, he might seem invisible, but he's not when we actually stop and look around at all that we've been given. We serve an amazing, wonderful God. He is the hero of this story. It's not Mordecai and it's not Esther. It's God. Number three, his purposes are intentional. There is a designer. Life is not random. It's not coincidence. It's intentional. Number four, his power is at work. You know what is interesting about this story? Show me the miracles. Show me somewhere in Esther where a lame man was made to, to walk, a blind man was made to see, where thousands were fed. Show, show me the miracle. Any, any miracles? Any visible, visible miracles? 
No, not our kind of miracles. The whole entire story is a miracle. God is powerful, and he is at work in our lives, and his promises, fifthly, are being fulfilled. This is not Satan winning. It's not Haman winning. It's God winning. Why? Because he promised. He promised he would preserve his people because in that line of people would come the Christ, the Messiah, so therefore they can't be wiped off the planet. Putting them in the right spot at the right time with the right power and the right purpose. I close with this statement. As we go through life, remember this. In every moment, there is a God who is providential and he's caring and working in your life. Even though life seems upside down and the world is falling apart, remember that God is present and is working his purpose in you with unmatched power so that someday he will fulfill what he has promised in you. Child of the king, hold your head up. The king of kings is still on the throne. He's still reigning. He's still in charge. And I hope that through the next couple of weeks, our heart will be encouraged that we do have hope even when it's unseen. Father, thank you so much for the time that you've given us together. We want to thank you for joining us on the NLBC podcast today. We hope that God will allow this message to truly make a difference in your life. As you learn more about Him and as you study His Word, we pray that it will cause you to live out the gospel in a whole new way. Again, if you would like to connect with us, feel free to reach out by visiting our website at newlifecasagrande.com. If you are local to the Casa Grande area, then we would love to have you join us in person. We have services at 8.30 and 11 a.m. each Sunday morning with a host of other opportunities to develop a godly community to learn and to grow. We'll see you next week on the New Life Baptist Church Podcast.